0: My name is Claire Press, and this is Wardrobe Crisis, the podcast that unzips fashion's issues.
1: Do you mind if I move the microphone? I just, I need to lounge.
0: (laughs) Devotion, darling.
1: Chateau.
0: I think as humans, we are major forces to be also reckoned with. And I think Creativity always flourishes when there is any type of crisis. That's been the absolute pleasure of, is watching talented people who have skills far and beyond mine come together and work collectively. Einstein always said, nature has all the answers. Just look to nature, it has all the answers.
1: Just because I happened to be able to source them easiest, I guess, I was buying original wool jackets in the 1950s, I was buying them at Portobello Market and a one man's rubbish is another man's gold. For me, it was about age, it was about the attitude of people, and it's about how
0: they're wearing the clothes, why they're wearing the clothes, and capturing a bit of their wisdom and empowering people to look at aging differently. Join me every week as we talk ethics, sustainability, and the business and madness of fashion. From who made your clothes, to how they impact on the environment, to the politics of personal style, we are so hot right now. When I first conceived of this podcast, Christopher Rayburn was one of the designers on the top of my list. I love lists. I make lists about everything. Anyway, Chris was on the top of mine. He is a true pioneer who's done so much to shake up our ideas around recycle, repurpose and reuse when it comes to high fashion. Susie Menks, the legendary fashion editor, calls him the UK king of recycling. But he talks about his work more in terms of archaeology than sustainability, because in repurposing materials, he is in a sense exploring the past. But make no mistake, his eye is firmly trained on the future. Chris is a super modern designer and his work offers us inspiration on how designers might problem solve fashion out of its eco issues. It also packs powerful messages, whether about the value of repair, and you can get your Christopher Rayburn gear repaired at his studio in London for free, or something like tackling ocean plastics. He began designing his latest collection before seeing Blue Planet 2, but we talk about how that series, presented by David Attenborough and watched by millions last year, really struck a chord with him. Christopher is probably best known for his menswear, He shows at the London menswear collections in January and June, but he designs women's wear too, and it's gorgeous. Based in London, he studied at the Royal College of Art, and from the get-go, his collections were built on this idea of repurposing materials, and in particular, military surplus materials. Anything from old flak jackets, tents, parachutes, to exquisitely beautiful silk map dresses and parkas that are actually made from, this is amazing, Royal Air Force maps that were printed on silk during the 1950s because they were more likely to survive rough use than paper would have been. It's really interesting to hear how Christopher finds this stuff and how he sees new life in these old stories. In this episode, you're going to get to hear how it all began. We talk about his East London studio where he encourages visitors. (laughs) He's going to get loads of visitors after this, isn't he? But he does. He encourages people to come by. I don't think you could just drop by. I think you need to go at a designated open day. But he loves to share his process. And the Christopher Rayburn label is all about transparency. He has run workshops in there in collaboration with Fashion Revolution where he gets people together and gets them to sew tote bags and to basically play. And he talks a lot about the fun of fashion. This conversation runs from inspiration to changing the world through baking your own bread and Christopher's love of animals. Ultimately, you just get to hear what an all round top bloke he is. He's just so obviously lovely. Enjoy. I'm so excited to talk to you because you are actually my hero.
1: <laughs>
0: what you do with repurposed clothing and fabric, I think it's really unusual and unique, but also one of the reasons why I love it so much is that It disproves that kind of idea that repurposing or upcycling that word can be a little bit dowdy or homey or something. What you're doing is really elevated design wise. Talk to me a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, I'm very proud, I have to say, of the work that we've been able to achieve as a company so far. I've always been, I suppose, very open and honest that for me it's a really almost a really happy accident um, because for me it was a love of functional fabrics of utility um, really from my childhood that then led me to be looking for original materials and original sort of fabrics that were made into garments and when I couldn't find the fabrics and yet I could find the garment still invariably um, Uh, sort of often completely untouched, wrapped in waxproof paper and hessian and all of this, and these original garments might be 60, 70 years old. It sort of fascinated me that that all of this stuff was out there. And to a certain degree, I I almost see it as a sort of archaeology, I guess, um, and Mm. and finding this original stuff and then making it into something relevant, something contemporary, something useful. And um, for me, though, it's always had to be design-led. I've never been... One for standing on a soapbox and, and sort of preaching that, that people should be wearing or consuming in, in one way or the other. But as a designer, you have an obligation to make choices up front. And if you make good choices up front, then you have a product that already has meaning and it has a lot of thought behind it. And I never set out to start a sustainable company. What I set out to do was follow my passion for functional clothing, utility, archaeology to a certain degree, a love of history, and then when you put that together with the fact that I was really interested in high quality items, making things wherever I could that were actually quite unique, you inherently have something quite sustainable because you're reusing materials, you're producing locally, you're building on craft and quality, and when you put all that together, it's sort of, as I say, unquestionably um, an example of what sustainability can be. For me, it was just about considered thought and almost as a reaction. like, Why would you not want a design like that? Yeah. I, I can't, like, you know, they, for me, it's baffling.
0: But when you talk about that happy accident that was driven by finding those first pieces that were abandoned, I guess, how does that even happen? Tell me, um, do please tell, how does one happen upon a stash of dead stock or old military garments that aren't being used? Where are they? Where do you find them?
1: I mean, the first thing to say is very, very little of this is abandoned, but the sheer quantity that's produced originally, invariably by, obviously, governments around the world for military units, but then also for anything that that's really on a government scale, there's so much of this stuff out there, and it's everything from parachutes to life rafts to blankets to You name it, you know, we've worked with 1950s silk maps. We've worked with uh, so many different types of jackets and and interesting materials. And the the truth is that so often they have to overproduce. Mm. And the fact that stuff isn't used is kind of a good thing, right? Because it hasn't been needed. And then one of the things with the military in particular is that Things will have a shelf life. And if I think about parachutes, they, they have a certain amount of jumps that they can do with them, or it's 10 years, and then if they haven't been used, then then they're out. Oh, I
0: see. Well, and they're weakened. They're not as reliable.
1: Well, it's a common, you know, the health and safety on these yeah. sort of items has to be so high that, um. yeah, it's, it's certainly a combination of things. And then what's interesting was that the first materials I started to work with were British, just because I happened to be, able to source them easiest, I guess. I was buying original wool jackets from the 1950s. I was buying them at Portobello Market here Where in London. Were you?
0: I didn't know that. I see. Yeah, yeah. So you'd find them as one-offs, one-by-one, uh, one rather than a big stash?
1: I was able to buy them still in bags of 25, um, wrapped in the wax-proof paper and stuff, as I mentioned earlier.
0: And were they really cheap? Did no one want them?
1: Yeah, and I was about to say, at the time, I was buying them for £1 each.
0: Crikey.
1: Uh yeah, and I suppose it's a combination of and you know, a one man's rubbish is another man's gold, yeah, yeah, for me, it's never well, it's always been about how you can take these original items, completely deconstruct them, and then make them into something completely new, so it's never about replicating anything or just simply you know adding a patch or whatever. It's a lot more immersive than that,
0: Christopher, when you were at the r c a and you found those first jackets. Did it just hit you like a bolt? Like, okay, we could deconstruct these and do something new with them. How did it evolve that process?
1: Well, actually, it was when I was on my degree, which was at Middlesex University, so in in North London. And it was first year at at university that I did my first ever sort of menswear project. And um, I was just fascinated by the fact that even if I wanted to buy an original bolt of wool on a roll, Mm -hmm. I wouldn't be able to. And yet I was able to buy all of these original jackets. So... It was really just that, yeah, sort of love of the craft, the detail, all of the original kind of labelling and all of that stuff. And what I never wanted to do was fabricate anything. So it kind of brought together these two different worlds, I guess, that I'd always been interested by all of this stuff that was out there. And then when I had the chance to to then start to sort of, well, bring together design language and, uh, and actually making, yeah, it fascinated me and it, and it led to the work that I do today. Hey, Claire. I- yeah. This, this will be interesting for the um for the podcast I need to just uh, close the kitchen door uh, you might hear my bread maker in the background <laughs> <laughs> it's to me off. <laughs> there we go it's good for the souls making bread
0: I was gonna say I love that you're actually baking as well like you are a man who wants to make everything
1: oh <laughs> uh, do you know what like I don't get many days to work from home and um we were doing one of our workshops that we'll come on to over the weekend, then I did an open studio. So long story short, I took today to work from home and it's the best thing. Make your own bread. Love it. It's the best.
0: Thinking about you hunting down those vintage creatures in Portobello, there's kind of, when I look for vintage stuff, I find a real thrill when you kind of pin it down and you've, you've chased it down and caught it. Do you feel that? Is that something that you relate to?
1: Oh, completely. I mean, some people collect old vinyl, some people collect, you know, beautiful vintage books. For me, uh, I do collect a lot of books, but my, my library really is, is um, the original garments, you know, the vintage garments. Yeah. And what's nice is that with the remade concept, even though we deconstruct hundreds, sometimes thousands of pieces, of course, a year or, or a season, I always keep one of every original piece for my archive. One of the really good things about moving to the new studio is that we've been able to get properly organized. Yeah. So now, and just have boxes of stuff anymore we, we genuinely do have one of everything and it has been archived properly we've uh, recently been digitizing the whole archive as well so it'll be accessible and yeah just a lot easier to use um not just for myself but for the team and and any of our clients that we work with as well
0: your studio is also a kind of hub and a place that i mean you hold workshops it's a place that people can come and see what you do right
1: yeah. Um, Tell me about Remade Studio. And it's in the sites of the old Burberry textile building. So we're over in Hackney Central, which is in in East London, and um, it's fantastic to be back in the space with such history. Because genuinely, they were they were making the materials, and then. Garments for Burberry from the 1880s, then became their headquarters. And so when we moved into the space and we're we're very fortunate, we have a corner space with a a sort of beautiful windows, old factory building, of course. Um, So these big, high ceilings as well. And when I moved into the space, in fact, there was nothing in there at all, genuinely nothing. And I knew we'd bitten off quite a lot when the, the yeah. landlords said, uh, said to me, what floor are you going to put in? I said, well, what? We don't <laughs> get floor? um floor. Yeah, and then it was, you know, no, no light, no heat, no anything. And so one of the good and bad things there was, I hope I'll get this opportunity again, but I realise now what an amazing thing to have been able to design a space exactly the way the business needed it. And by that, I mean it's a completely flexible 2,500 square feet of design space, showroom, the workshop and the archive that all, you know, pretty much everything's on wheels. So if you want to do workshops, we can do. If we need to do present the collection in a certain way then, then we can do. And just having that flexibility is absolutely amazing. And one of the things that I really wanted to make sure was that that space would become yeah, sort of creative and community hub is the best way that I can describe it because the truth is that our business, sort of as big as we get and as proud as I am of our wholesale business, we work almost as four or five different businesses under one roof because we, we have our wholesale business, we then do consultancy and collaboration, we do workshops, we do teaching and, and all of these things sort of help us to move forward as, as a business overall. And I think if we were just doing one or the other, it sort of wouldn't work so well.
0: That's interesting because I was going to ask you how it kind of helps you as a designer, but you don't need to create these great workshops or allow the community to come and be a part of your space. It obviously, gives you something as well as it giving them something fab. But what? how does that work? I mean, tell us about the pop-up zoo that you just had.
1: <laughs> I love it yeah so each season we do a different animal mascots and they the small ones um use off offcuts at the studio we give one to each store to say thank you and they're linked with the theme of the collection so for example we did one based around the desert so of course we choose a, a lizard you know we've done polar bears and rabbits and all of these um sort of this whole menagerie of, of animals and then we do inflatables for shop windows and um we 've never actually had the opportunity to see all of the animals in one place, and so now that we've we 've got this um, fantastic space, we had about uh, i think it's between fifteen and twenty of these large uh, sort of inflatable animals in in the um, in the studio, along with then a fantastic um, new initiative we 're doing where people can sort of customize their own t shirts I and mean, it 's completely organic uh, cotton carbon neutral t shirts then We've worked with an amazing company called Avery Dennison, who are one of the world's sort of leading branding specialists. And um, Avery Dennison have helped us to recycle plastic bottles, all of those Coca-Cola and Evian bottles. They're they're chipped into pellets, then made into fibre. And then using technology from Avery Dennison, we can then reweave that fibre into heat press patches. You need a, a small amount of glue, which is new, but the rest is all recycled. And then... We have all of these patches which are shaped like the animals. We have letters. We have um, numbers as well. And then people can make completely their own unique T-shirt, which, of course, then underpins everything we're trying to do as a as a, um, as a company. And what was nice there is that anybody walking into the studio, and genuinely it, w- it was open to anybody, anyone could then get involved with that because we had kid sizes on the T-shirts. And it was really, it was really interesting because a lot of people – of wander in and they're, they're a little taken aback or they're nervous <laughs> about walking into a fashion studio they've never had that opportunity if that's the right word before but then it's quite a sort of disarming thing if you will because everyone knows a t-shirt and then all of a sudden even people that sort of say oh, i'm not feeling that creative next thing you know <laughs> you know they're, they're really going for it so it's a really nice way to sort of engage with people and um but for me, our old studio, which was in a in a place called Mile End, we are on the third floor of a of an old computer laboratory in the back end of nowhere behind razor wire. <laughs> and I realised that actually my personal mission in this and part certainly the, the mission of the company is to just be transparent, to be engaging, to be through and through what we're trying to do with the company. And so now being in this new space, absolutely, you know, we want the door to be open. We we want people to come and visit, to ask questions, to teach and, and to engage. And, you know, like with the bread making, it's very, very good for the soul. Yeah. And then you learn a great deal as well. And that's really nice because people do ask sometimes very difficult questions and they do challenge you and that, that's really healthy.
0: Do you think that maybe other designers will see what you're doing and think, hey, We might get a piece of that ourselves, if not making tortoises. (laughs) I saw this, like, army of people making tortoises on your
1: website. Yeah, Yeah, but as I mentioned earlier, you know, it's not for me ever to think that one designer should do things one way or or not. I think it's really important we go our way and we do what we think is right for our business. And I I do think it's, you know, it's working in a really simple way of of saying things. It's working for us as a business and – you know, other things will work for, for other businesses. So I think it's...
0: That makes sense.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, you actually held a workshop over Fashion Revolution Week, I believe, did you not? Was that the tortoises? Could have been.
1: Uh, no, we did a tote making workshop. Oh, where yeah? People would come and they cut their own tote bag, but from parachute fabric. And then we did the Avery Dennison patches, which are able to heat press onto them. The good and bad problem there was that it was incredibly well attended, <laughs> so I think it's the, the busiest we've ever had the studio, and we made uh, a lot of tote bags over the course of an evening, and then has finished quite a few more the following day. You could again, well
0: have, yeah, you could have boosted Made in Britain by a decent percentage. In fact, just on that very day.
1: Yeah, I think we definitely hit our quota for. The- <laughs> That way. uh, You know, again, it it was really nice because we had some really good supporters, of course, from Fashion Revolution. We had journalists through, we had local community. Then we had a lot of designers from other companies that came along as well. And I think, again, the more that we can work on some of these issues together around material waste, around, you know, really considered design, and the more we can inspire each other, again, I, I just feel that it works because you're not just working alone. You know that. So many of these other sort of bodies, uh, designers, etc., are thinking and doing the same thing.
0: Christopher, tell me about Remade in England. It's kind of a revolutionary concept. Can you explain it?
1: Sure. So um, Remade in England uh, started, in fact, as a university project back in 2001. We actually did a menswear project in the first year at uni and... Um, yeah, I, I sort of made this um, smock jacket from 1950s, battle dress jackets, completely deconstructed, reworked. And actually, the funny thing is, at the time, my tutors really didn't get it. <laughs> I didn't get very good grades or anything like that on my degree. But fortunately, when I got to the Royal College and I studied womenswear, my tutor at the time, Wendy Dagworthy, was incredibly supportive.
0: She's amazing, yeah, right.
1: Yeah, so she really thought that the remade idea was something that I should um, refine, specialise, all of those things. So I was, I guess, really interested in uh, the fact that you weren't just making something, you were physically remaking it. And by that, I mean completely deconstructing and reworking an original item, um, sometimes uh, an original garment, but we've worked with a lot of different um, different items, everything from Eurostar seat covers to hot air balloons to life rafts, as I mentioned earlier.
0: I didn't know you had the seat covers. I thought it was uniforms from Eurostar.
1: <laughs> no, no, no. We've, we've done a great deal. We made them into bags. Um.
0: And, and the maps, of course, you mentioned before that you've used silk on which maps were printed, 1950s escape maps for the RAF, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. So um, it's really about finding something that already has um, sort of an, a fantastic, authentic, original story and the original use and then completely deconstructing it, really looking at those core sort of details and then reconstructing it into making it something completely unexpected, something new. Um, and actually, the truth is invariably for us, something still contemporary and wearable. Yeah. Because although we do do a lot of fairly experimental clothing, we do a lot that actually is really very, very wearable. And for me, again, finding that balance is still really key in all of this because. I don't just want to be seen as a sort of experimental designer that is on sort of the fringes of, of the industry. You know, we, we genuinely want to be making products that a lot of people can wear.
0: Well, you love that word functional, right? And I mean, your pieces are essentially functional, aren't they? I mean, they aren't wacky and unwearable. You make, you're the king of coats. You make outerwear that people can actually live in their real lives in, right?
1: Yeah, we, we do. Uh, we do do some wacky stuff as well. <laughs> and that, you know. <laughs> It's important and it's fun. A and, balance. And remember, yeah, and remembering that we do show at London Fashion Week and, you know, we we do some pieces, of course, to drive um, interest in, in the company as a whole. But then also what we've done as the company has developed, we, we very much started with this remade concept. The first collection I ever showed at London Fashion Week was just eight garments made from one military parachute. Very, very clear concept. Um, and I'd like to think pretty well communicated but as the company's grown, we now have two other sort of pillars to our business. One that um, we call them the three R's. So you have remade, reduced and recycled and um, remade, I've, I've just explained. But then with reduced, it's very much about organic cottons. It's about local manufacturing. It's about really reviewing our carbon footprints and, and working it out. So the best place to be manufacturing the highest possible quality item And then with recycled, um, I touched on it a little bit earlier, but it's about working a lot with recycled PET plastics. So particularly all of those those plastic drinking bottles that a lot of people sort of consume every day. And we use those for more of our sort of technical outerwear because they have, again, a a real functionality when they're rewoven into fabrics that we can use, particularly on our pack away hoodies and bags and all of these things as well. So although the remade is is very much about the concept, it's what we're so well known for, having these other pillars in the business now is allowing us to grow and it's allowing us also to manufacture in different parts of the world and for it all still really to make sense.
0: How much do you consider the life cycle of your garments when you're at the design stage?
1: It's something that I'm becoming more and more mindful of, I mean, when I look at the work that Patagonia are doing, for example, it's incredibly inspiring. We also have to be very open and honest that we're a tiny business Mm. that can't necessarily think about recapturing all of our garments when they're they're done with their life cycle. But what we do do is offer a completely free repair service, Rayburn Repairs, which we do actually throughout the year, but then we also have physical points where people can come into the studio. There you do. Our whole, yeah. A whole sort of philosophy there, you know, when, when I first mentioned it to the team, it's like, oh, could it ever be misconstrued? You know, why are garments breaking, etc. You know, those oh. sorts of problems. But my view is like, look, guys, we get it. Like, stuff breaks. Do you know what I mean? And um, all we want to do is keep you using this stuff. So, again, it's about, I'd like to think, um, having the right ethos and being clear about what we're communicating and what was really inspiring, I have to say, when we did our repairs day, we did one earlier in the in the spring, going to summer, I'd say at least 50%, if not over 50% of the repairs that we did that day were for zips, and we can't do anything about that. You know, we work with one of the best zip manufacturers in the world, but things still break. You know, if you've worn something for four or five years, the, these things happen. But so, then
0: by offering a solution which is not turf it out we can actually replace that for you then that is in itself a revolutionary act I mean in this conversation when we're looking at throwaway culture and so-called disposable fashion
1: yeah it it is but then I I wouldn't for a minute think that we're pioneering this because uh, there are so many great companies out there that have done this for years and and our grandmothers did it (laughs) yeah exactly and and, you know you might have read in your research my grandmother was uh, she was married December 1941 in a parachute dress that she'd made herself from silk parachute. I did know
0: this. Amazing. Yeah. So actually that whole wartime mentality of making do of being innovative with resources, that's interesting because I feel like it's becoming more prevalent or more, it's becoming more relevant now because we are, even though we're not there yet, we have to realise that we are on the brink of resource scarcity in some respects, right? So yeah, innovation is the way that we can get through it. I mean, we've done it before. We only became like really wasteful in the last couple of generations, really, don't you think?
1: Um I suspect some people have, but I it's really difficult, I think, just to have a broad brush mm. approach.
0: Oh, you're so reasonable and sensible, Christopher. <laughs> I'm like generalising you know, woman.
1: <laughs> I, no, no, no. I'm, you know, no, you're, a, right, re- you're right. You're right. You're right. Because the truth is, you know, even when we think about fast fashion, it would be so easy to be very, very critical. But people need affordable clothing. You know, and actually, you have to be again reasonable. Mm. I think that the job that we have, and I talk to you obviously as a, as a journalist and as a, a pioneer yourself, it's again, it's about education. It's about trying to make sure that although people need you know affordable clothing and sometimes quick clothing, it's still of a quality, and that people understand and appreciate what's gone into that item and the fact that you know we shouldn't feel so disconnected from the manufacturing process mm-hmm. and the people. That yeah. actually made up. And I think that's really the, the key and maybe where we've had a bit of a disconnect, not just in fashion, but in food and in all of these other products that we consume all the time. And I think I'm personally excited that while, of course, there's revolution in tech and everything else, there's always that reaction. And we've certainly found that our customers and our supporters are more engaged ever with craft and quality and actually making something and being hands on something and that links back to part of the reason we're doing the workshops and we're and we're really teaching people skills you know because this stuff's being lost but it's also being valued and people don't want to lose it and you know it's it,
0: but also it's very um it's empowering it feels good when you reconnect with the ability to Like the kind of thrill you get when you realise that you can do a small thing. (laughs) It's quite empowering to be able to go, actually, I can use my hands and I can transform this thing into this next thing. Like, I feel like people love it. It's just we need to be reminded of how, you know, the practicalities of how to do it.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, as everything's kind of speeding up and we seem to have less and less time and perhaps those skills that you used to learn from your grandparents or your parents, you know, now people are you know buying something rather than repairing it um yeah I just think it's more important that <laughs> we as a business but then also as a sort of collective inspire people that yeah they, they can physically be making their own thing and it's not even that first thing that we're teaching them it's then the right. knock on from those things that they go home and continue to make that's the exciting bit because we now have people emailing to the studio to say oh yeah I've altered my bag so it can do this or <laughs> look what right yeah you know it's it's fascinating.
0: Where does it come from in you, Christopher? Um, I wanted to ask you about your childhood. I wanted to ask about the military thing, like where does that come from? But also, where does the making stuff thing come from? Were you like a, a kid that made, I don't know, woodwork? <laughs> what do you make as a kid?
1: We grew up in the in the middle of the countryside in, in Kent and South East England. And um, we very much grew up I guess, with this attitude that you almost had to make your own fun. You know, my dad was uh, was an emergency safety officer for Bromley Council. <laughs> so uh, the local government, very pragmatic, very hands-on. But he also, he used to renovate 1920s and, and 30s cars, oh. so old, old vintage cars, and would work quite long hours during the week. But we were brought up with this amazing, I guess, um, Philosophy and, and way of life where my dad worked these long hours, but he always used to say to us that if we could draw something during the week, but with proper measurements, you know, a technical drawing, he'd help us make it at the weekend.
0: That's and of course, fabulous. One,
1: yeah, one has slightly rosy tinted glasses. But what an amazing way to bring up kids because we work together. My, my brothers and I sometimes, yeah, to do these sort of drawings of everything from tree houses to robots to you name it, like we would try and build it. So I remember being taught how to weld metal, probably when I was about 10 or 11 years old. And I just thought all this stuff was normal because you do when you're a kid. And um, But actually, you're
0: a big, sorry to call you a big kid, but in a way, a big kid who builds stuff now. So that is actually so fascinating to hear that you started building stuff as a kid and that's what you do really now. You build clothes, you build collections.
1: Yeah, completely. And when I look back on it, and um, I think about this, sort of fairly idyllic upbringing in the countryside you know we were very very fortunate and I grew up close to 100 acre wood where Winnie the Pooh
0: lives
1: and Tigger and all of this and then I think about the animal connection and I suppose I just grew up in this sort of imaginary world anyway and so (laughs) yeah it, it all kind of makes sense now that I studied down in Kent so southeast England and then from there I ended up going to art college and the really good thing about doing an art foundation year is that actually you do sort of two weeks of everything so photography, architecture, graphic design, fashion but fashion really resonated because of the process and the fact that for me a lot of the work that I do is around the research and then um, obviously trying to find stories, narratives and and the really good thing within fashion is you can do all of those things and then ultimately actually if you wanted to you can do it all in one day and of course you can kind of do that with product design, probably, but less so with architecture or anything like that. So I kind of like the, um, the, the
0: the immediacy of it.
1: Yeah, to a certain degree, and then the yeah the, the kind of thoroughness of that process. And um, once I um, graduated from the Royal College, I actually spent three years pattern cutting, uh, freelancing for other designers, and and sort of that allowed me financially to set up a small studio and. Um, that was actually in Luton, so just north uh, north of London, where I was offered a, a free space. But um, around the same time, I actually went to a series of lectures run by the Ethical Fashion Forum. Um, and at the time, Alex McIntosh was there. And um, over the course of sort of six or seven seminars, I learned a lot about what the future of um, kind of sustainable design could be, what it meant potentially to different people. Very um, oh, fascinating. Mind,
0: yeah
1: still sort of 10, 11 years ago, Um, but what I also realised is that the work that I'd been doing, it was inherently sustainable if you will, because it was about of course reusing military materials, I'd employed my first um, local seamstress called Pat, and it was all about creating very high quality items but kind of doing less but better, and I take a lot of confidence and sort of inspiration these days. in the in the UK the BBC's just run an amazing series called Blue Planet. Blue well that Planet was the two. last thing
0: I was going to ask you because I just saw on your Instagram that you had shared about it and it's ever so upsetting, isn't it? But yes, tell me about your reaction to the plastics.
1: Well, I mean, I think it's incredible because here in the UK Again, even just to talk, I guess, about the the changes socially in the last 10 or 15 years, of course, now digital TV, all of these things, there's so many different ways that people can view um, moving image these days. And and what's so inspiring is that 14 million people have been tuning in to watch Blue Planet 2, and it's a series that, that took four years for the BBC to put together. And for the first time... I would say, consistently. The BBC is not just having a wonderful nature programme where they're they're talking about incredible, essentially, cinematography. What they're doing is actually highlighting the next step and what we're doing in terms of damaging the planet. And a lot of the images from Blue Planet 2 have actually been incredibly haunting and quite upsetting. And I think that's incredible, and it's strong, and it's needed. And people are talking about it. It's all over mass media. It's all over conversation is not just here at the studio of course but everywhere I go
0: and the whale the whale dying I mean it's ever so affecting isn't it to see that that baby whale was being protected by its mother but had not any chance how does that then affect you guys in the studio and I suppose I'd like to just finish up by you talking about how you're working with recycled plastics I mean so when you watch that what do you think you think okay what (laughs) what action can we take
1: You know, it's been really interesting because there's been, I listen to the radio a a lot when I'm at home and there's so much on with people that will phone in and say, well, you know, what can I do as the sort of the individual? But actually that's the entire point. It's about what we can do, of course, by oneself, but then also as a collective. And um, I hope as a design practice, we're making good choices up front for our customers and that's helping. And then in turn, I look to all of our customers, as I do myself, to be making good choices in our everyday lives. You know, and that's everything from, of course, recycling materials, um, thinking about everything from food waste to, to the way that we travel. And it's it's all just so incredibly linked. And all I can say is that I hope with the balance that we have as a company, with Remade, Recycled and Reduced, we're increasingly being seen as a, you know sort of a a pioneer within the industry and and i'm the first to say actually none of this is new by any means so we're not the pioneers but but what's great is that we're increasingly working with much bigger companies where you then make a massive difference because of course if you're if you're working with truly global companies and you can work using some of the learnings from from our almost london lab from our tiny company and the things that we've experienced in the last nearly 10 years in business, then I I think you've got a chance. But ultimately, and I think, I'm sure I would have talked about this previously, this has to be, for me, about a design-led focus. It's not about getting on a soapbox and preaching to people that, that, you know, that they should wear this or they should consume that or they should eat this way or that way. But actually, if you can provide better choices up front anyway, which, again, kind of make it a little bit unquestionable, it's just a really cool coat. And then when you get it home and you read all the labelling and then you understand all this and that, you're kind of completely hooked, but that's our obligation and that's where we put our energy is making those choices and finding the best partners for fabric manufacturing around the world. But, you know, it's still baby steps. It really is. And um, we're tiny as a company. We experience a lot of issues around minimum order quantities, around scalability, around all of those things. But I also think we've got a chance and it's an exciting place to be.
0: Oh, so do I. May we just finish up by talking about your next collection?
1: In a case of serendipity, because I didn't know about Blue Planet coming through, our entire collection, actually, I mean, it's called Immerse, and it's, um, of course, mixing both men's and women's wear. So we've done a lot of research around functional things, like immersion suits, helicopter winchman suits, all of these things. Actually, you plunge into cold water. And so there's a lot around layering and, of course, incredible remade items, I'd like to think incredible. But above all of those show pieces, what has actually happened is an incredible amount of hard work in the recycled and reduced section. So really looking at, of course, our fit, quality, the way that we're balancing the the pricing architecture of the collection. So we actually have a a lot more scope to grow because if we just did remade, we wouldn't have a business. You know, we'd be artists and, and very conceptual. But by bringing in those other tiers with the the recycled and reduced, which again then really play on colour, print, and functional detailing, it's about the balance of those things really working together. But coming back to Blue Planet, we've then of course got a seasonal mascot It links back to Blue Planet, and we designed it in fact in the summer. <laughs> way oh wow! Before. Great. So it's really nice that all of this is kind of linked together. And as I say. Um, I take a lot of confidence and inspiration that the work that we're doing is more than ever part of the the sort of social and cultural zeitgeist than ever before. And I think you you need to be that to be relevant. And um, I'm looking forward to it, to be honest.
0: Yeah. Did you see that American Vogue story that proclaimed that 2017 was the year that sustainability got sexy? Yeah. I quite liked it. I mean, good. That's what I want to happen. What did you think of that?
1: I thought it was good. I thought it was still written in a very uh, almost kind of tongue-in-cheek uh, way, some of it. I mean, it's incredible. Again, back to mass media and reading things like uh, the free newspapers here, the Even Standard and the and the Metro and things like that, even their reactions still to things like Blue Planet are, yes, they were very affected by it, but it's still kind of, I can't quite put my finger on it, but it's still like people think it's not as bad as it is. And yeah, I, I still think we need to keep, again, keep pushing on, on all of this stuff. But of course, the USV doing things like that is, is only good news.
0: Well, we've um, got to be careful that it's not a fleeting trend or framed as something that, oh, that's hot this season. Like That needs to be something that we pursue all the time, hey?
1: Oh, you wouldn't believe over, you know, now 10 years in, of my career, people saying to me, oh, how long do you think the sustainability trend is going to last? Oh, God. Oh my lord, like you know, and this, these are clever people asking questions like that. That is worrying. Yeah, you know, this isn't if we do not change what we're doing,
0: we've still got work it. to do. And and I will let you go and do your work with that, Chris. Um, I'm so grateful for you taking the time to talk to us. Thank you so much.
1: Really appreciate it. It's
0: getting My parents feel that <laughs> Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today, hop on over to my website, which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast. You can get in touch there and I really hope you will. I'd love to hear from you. And you can also find links to my social media. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please head over to iTunes and subscribe. You know what they say, first in, best dressed. Subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover Wardrobe Crisis, so I'd love your help with that. Because the more people who switch onto ethical fashion, the better. Is the Music is by Montaigne. She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for Wardrobe Crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Because I love you, my parents feel that.